Hello and welcome to our first show of 2021. I'm Carlos and joining me in the P2K Master Suite studio, as always, it is the very, well, bright and, bright and fresh Matt Smith. Are you still on the eggnog? What, what, what's, what's, yeah, going, eggnog. what's going on there? You've been watching too many Christmas films, Matt. Oh, have I? Oh, sorry. Well, of course. Yeah, come on. It's post-Christmas. You're, you're allowed to. It's been fun. It's been fun. Uh, I'm all right, mate. Happy New Year. Yeah, happy New Year! Happy How New have Year. you been? Uh, yeah, good, thank you. Uh, yeah, not it's it's been lovely, not sort of doing much really. I've been doing a bit of the jobs, the day job in between, and that. But uh, mm. it's been uh, yeah, it's been really nice. I had a good Christmas. Had a good Christmas. Just me and mum. Uh, and then and Box- Alfie. Yeah, and, and Alfie, Mark, of course, Mama. yeah, and Mima. And then Boxing Day, down to go and see my uncle um, in, as, as part of the three um units that are the three households that are allowed to meet up <laughs> bubbles so, units, yeah whatever you want to call it things, yeah so yeah. we have taken full advantage of the fact that we're allowed to go and visit other people so uh, uh, we've done that yeah so a little trip down to clacton clacton on sea classy i know lovely uh for boxing day uh what about you what have you been up to no not a lot christmas day uh with Gemma's mum and dad which oh, lovely. Uh, is lovely and um boxing day for the rest duration of uh, christmas we're just uh, we're just we're just on our own really and she's just kind of chilling out here because we're we're popping uh, all the, the families are all so yeah fragmented and everything round round the whole of east anglia so we kind yeah. of decided that we'd do because of Gemma's job with the NHS, we'd kind of stick to uh, to our home turf uh, for Christmas. Good plan, good plan. Yeah, yeah. But it's been good. Put on well, far too much weight. And, uh, <laughs> New Year's resolution to lose weight. Um, yeah, that'll last for about 10 minutes. Right, um, good. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like Mr. Bounds. I do like a nice glass of vino. So... Um, <laughs> Actually, actually, I will ask Matt. Did you see the Christmas special with uh, Gina DeCampo and uh, and uh, Gordon Ramsay? No, um, <laughs> no, I didn't. Is it? No, you missed it. Something it I need to watch. Brilliant. It? Okay, it was brilliant. Right, you need okay. to watch it on catch. Okay, up, all right, I will. Yeah. I will. I will. Okay, uh, because we're not, we're not alone in the virtual. We're studio. not alone. We're not alone. No, we have got uh, the well, the the king of all things, Vino de Plonco. It is, of course. <laughs> Neville Pounds. Yes, you're suggesting that I have a, a problem with it. <laughs> no, I did not say that, Ned. I never <laughs> said. Is, I don't think I'll be drinking anymore for a while. And, uh, <laughs> the diet really does start today because, uh, well, you know how it's easy to overdo it at Christmas and the New Year, isn't it? Well, of course, because of the rule changes, uh, we're now in Tier 4 uh, down here in Buckinghamshire. That means we can go nowhere at all. So it was a very fat Christmas spent at home, totally overdoing it on the food, uh, not walking enough. Uh, it just means that the diet is going to be far more difficult in the New Year. Happy New Year, everyone! Yes. <laughs> now, of course, there's, there, there is one person who we don't have to, who doesn't have to worry about that because he's. Oh, hold on! I was just going to ask one quick question, man. Oh, okay, go on. Just one quick question: How, how is uh, Nanny and Grandad life? <gasps> oh, yeah. Oh, that yes, of course. I'd, I'd almost forgotten. <laughs> Uh, obviously we couldn't see them over the christmas period because of the lockdown thing but we did see them just before christmas and uh, it was lovely to see one week old finley and, uh, what a what a fantastic little boy he's going to be so uh, yeah it was uh, absolutely delightful so uh, congratulations to my son david and his fiance jade an absolutely a uh, bundle of joy little finley so. has it sunk, has it sunk in yet no, I don't think it has, even though it's a few <laughs> weeks ago, but I don't think it will um, for a while, so we'll have to see. But, uh, yeah, it is uh, fantastic news for both of them. And, uh, obviously, we are available for babysitting duties. <laughs> uh, give him back at the end of the year. Actually, you, begs the question, Nev. Yeah. <laughs> begs the question, Nev. Ha- have you brought uh, Finlay any uh, BA 
um, monogrammed. Oh, not yet. Come off for goodness. <laughs> yes, I'm going to have a look through uh, plain reclaimers oh, no. uh, very shortly to see what's on there, <laughs> and uh, maybe we can get him a sort of a uh, some sort of BA memorabilia of some sort. So, Armando, uh, Armando, rescue the situation, please. Yes, Armando. <laughs> hello, I'm and not, welcome. I'm not going to help at all. I'm still hung up on that British Airways crockery set that they were selling. <laughs> I'm thinking some of those those napkins would make some great uh, right. baby clothing. Wow. Okay. Na- napkins. Wow. W- wow. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> Turn them into nappies or something. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so so on that Sorry. note, yeah, I've been on. I've been on the eggnog. Yeah. What have you been doing yeah. on Monday? <laughs> well, let's just say this is not tea anymore. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> it has been a quiet Christmas and uh, holiday season for us. We are also sort of just staying to ourselves, doing a self-quarantine. And uh, family Christmas was just the three of us. Well, I guess the five of us with Benny and Lois. Of course. Um, and because it is the first of the new year, uh, Megan and mine's anniversary is the 31st of de- uh, December. So happy anniversary, babe. Oh. And she's staring at me with just... Loving eyes. Easy, yeah. <laughs> yes. Lockdown, lockdown going well, is it? Is there a bit of, you know, stabby eyes, is it? Oh, no. Those those were, you know, probably March of 2020. <laughs> oh, that's when lockdown started, right? Those were stabby eyes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the one. Oh, dear. Never mind. All part of the fun. How, how many pairs of socks did you get for Christmas, Armando? Uh, two. And they have oh, dog good. faces on. Oh, <laughs> Wow, okay. Uh, Brilliant. Uh, Well, it is uh, the first show of 2020. And as many of you, I'm sure, are aware, we like to do a little bit of a a clip show. It's the only one that we do every year. Obviously, as you probably realise, this isn't live. This is a pre record. um, Which is why. Yeah, I know. I know, absolutely. Which is why Armando's. We're live. Yeah. Oh, dear. Never mind. The chat room's full. Is it? Right. No, that's because we've just finished doing a show. Oh, that's just my belly. Goodness say. It's also why Armando's lovely, lo- lovely, and lovely, long-suffering wife is looking at him to say, "What do you mean? It's it's not our anniversary yet. What do you want?" But anyway, but that's all part of the fun. Uh, sorry, have I ruined the illusion? Okay, sorry, uh, Carlos, you carry on. <laughs> yes. So part of our fast, uh, fast, our fast show, part of our first show for the new year, we thought we'd uh, get together and we'd choose our favourite um, part or favourite interview, favourite segment. Uh, from the last kind of year. So we all put our heads together and uh, we had a a choice of uh, what we wanted to pick. Lots of great things we've done over the last year and bits of interviews and stuff we've done. So um, we're going to go, actually, I think we'll go to Nev first. Nev, what was uh, your choice of uh, interview or segment for the favourite part of the show? Yeah, it was so difficult to choose, actually. I mean, we've done so much in the last year. But uh, there's one thing for me that just stands out above all the other things that we've done. This is my own opinion, obviously. But just under a year ago, we had our 300th show, if you can recall that. I can't believe it was 12 months ago for a start. Uh, But we were at the Renaissance Hotel at Heathrow, where we had a fantastic gathering of guests. Uh, There was food and drink, obviously. There was a lovely cake. 
Uh, and of course, who could believe that just two or three months after that, we're into a big lockdown and all the COVID stuff. So it's actually really nice to see uh, this segment again. And here was the bit that we showed right at the end where all of our friends from the PTUK world were talking to me about how much they'd enjoyed it. So I uh, had a job where I just had a lot of office work, and I got tired of listening to music. So I uh, ran across Jeff's podcast, and then I kept looking for him, and then I found uh, the Airplane Geeks, and then I ran across y'all. So it just, it just kept growing from there. Oh, I've had a great time, Nev. It's been good to celebrate part of the 300 show. I think the social aspect more than anything else, you know. Uh, I mean, the whole thing was, was well done. I mean, I think the, the life Bane tells without a hiccup was pretty impressive. I always assumed that there would be a lot of outtakes there, but uh, I think you're just putting that on. I thought it was wonderful. It was just great to see all of the, the people that I didn't know and to see the old friends. And it, it was just fantastic. You really put together a wonderful event. Love being able to see all the planes out the window. It was just fantastic. Really, really great. And so great that, you know, the hosts from PTUK and, you know, and Paul came over. Fantastic. Um, obviously, at work, I have a lot of time, a lot of listening time. You get bored of listening to Spotify and different music things. So I started looking for, because I like sort of talk radio shows. I used to listen to a Chris Moore show back in, back in the day. And, uh, yeah, just started looking to see if there was anything that I could listen to aviation-related. I stumbled across, I think the first one I stumbled across was playing crazy down under and then they advertised P, uh, PTUK um, I think I joined about episode 40 something I think Matt had just started it so. and just kept going from there and what got you into listening in the first place? Uh, you did, my friend. You did. It was uh, uh, our frequent flying together and running into you at the airport. And uh, you told me about the uh, the Plane Talking UK podcast. And I thought, I need to find out what it's about. And it, it's been great joining the community, joining in when I'm traveling the world and looking for uh, a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of news, and a little bit of uh, uh, fun information from a, a great bunch of people. Absolutely excellent. It's my first meeting. It's really my first contact with uh, you know, Plain Talk UK. Uh, but I, I found the whole thing, the, the way it's been organised, very, very impressive. Uh, I, was, I listened to another podcast that has a 24-hour stream and they just put other podcasts on that they appreciate and one of them was Airline Pilot Guy. So what happened was like the podcast I was listening to ended and it came on and of course the dulcet tones of Captain Jeff sucked me right into that one. And then, you know, the other hosts and their banter, and it's so humorous. So I totally got hooked on, on that podcast. And then from, from there, of course, PTUK, Plane Safety Podcast, and Airplane Geeks. And, yeah, just, oh, and everyone in this community from all the podcasts are just such wonderful people. I, you know, I just such a wonderful community. It's fascinating. And, and to see the, the workings of Heathrow that you would normally never get a chance to see or understand um, that was really fascinating. It's nice to talk to the pilots and find out what's really going on on the flight deck. Um, find out from the flight crews from uh, who's in the cabin ahead of me, who's in the cabin behind me, uh, if, if I'm not in the cabin behind me. Uh, and, yeah, great to see people who really 
enjoy aviation, um, the people who are flying me as well as me flying with them and getting to know who they are. Great selection there, Nev, and very fond memories of uh, of that, for sure. That was uh, quite an epic day, and as you said, we had no idea then what was round the corner. But hopefully, you know, we'll be, have a chance to get together again for another big meet-up at some point soon um, this year. Yeah, so, very much, yeah. Armando, over to you, and, uh, well, give us your choice for your favourite part of the uh, of the year. Well, this certainly wasn't an easy decision. When we first started talking about our favorite segments, uh, I think 2020, despite its quirks, we did so many good interviews, and you guys did a fantastic job um, just editing them, and, and so many great people that have joined the show, and I believe we've, we've grown uh, a little bit this year. Uh, one of my favorite interviews was actually Neil from Fairdare, but since we've just played that two weeks ago, um, I, I'd say I'd say my, my next favorite interview from from the year was actually Ariel Tweedo. Um, and the reason that is is because I just remember going crazy over Flying Wild Alaska and how it was one of the first aviation shows to really make it into prime time. And I think Ice Pilots was was quickly after that, but um, Ariel was, was a star of the show along with her dad, uh, Jim, and her mom, Ferno. And uh, this show follows the, the Tweedo family in Uniclete, Alaska, and their little airline. Uh, but it was just a, it's something that, that reminded me of when I was really, really getting into aviation and, and working on my pilot's license. And um, just a, she was just a, a, a great uh, guest to have on the show. So, Ariel, obviously, yeah. again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. And uh, so, basically, obviously, we all saw the, the series um, on Discovery. I know I, I absolutely, me and Armando thoroughly enjoyed the series. It's absolutely amazing. But uh, your, your, you. your, uh, your family uh, uh, has arguably done more than anyone to promote aviation in Alaska. So how did the, the whole show sort of come out? How did the Discovery Channel kind of approach you guys? Was it? You know, it's someone came and saw you one day. and So, no, it's actually a way different story, and a lot of people don't know this. So I actually went to school for TV and film production and in California. And so I um, did a little show on ABC called Wipeout. It was a big competition show. And so on that show, I did really – I got in, like, second place, and then they invited me back and, like, two more times to compete – and I just kept breaking things and then having a blast. And they were like, oh, yay, this is. But then I fell in love with I'm like, people do this for a living. People, like, I want to keep making TV shows. So I met a guy on the show. He was our safety coordinator. And he had just um, had just been to Alaska. And Deadliest um, Catch just came out. So me and him, we were like, hey, my family's interesting. My dad runs an airline. My, everyone in my family, they're all pilots. I was like, let's do a show about my family. So me and him, I think I was 20, we pitched it to um, all over Fox, ABC, NBC, Discovery. And it took like a year, like a year to pitch. And then, um, yeah, and I didn't really tell my parents about it. And we just sort of a film crew showed up and my dad was like, why aren't you in college? And and then then we started filming for like three and a half years. But yeah, so me and a friend actually created it. That's, that's pretty awesome that... Your daughter that's in college just shows up with a film crew 
to, you, <laughs> to your well, house he, and your company. <laughs> well, he didn't think it was that awesome at first. So they, but, and they still, they're like, our family is really not that interesting. Like, we're just like everybody else. We're pretty, like, just, just a normal family. And so, yeah, he didn't think it would work. And after, though, a couple of our family, like, our, the film crew lived with my parents after the show ended. They, like, it just, we be, all became this big family and everyone just, like, loved my parents. So they, like, they were like, can we just live with you guys for a while? And that, that, that was actually one of my questions is once, once, once it got pitched and they showed up with the, with the rigs and the lights and the microphones and the cameras, how did that go? Was it, was it disruptive to the operation? Was it kind of what we would all envision like this big film crew? Or was it just like just, just a couple of guys with, with cameras and microphones? So ours was, um, it was pretty big. So in, in our, like, so we had three base. It was in Unicleet, where my family's from, and then we had another crew in Bethel, and then another one in Nome. And it just depend on, it depends on who had the coolest story of the day. And so, um, yeah, and so we had, like, probably, like, 15 to 20 people on our crew. But then, like, in our little airport, um, it would be maybe, like, five people, like, two cameras, two producers, and then a sound guy. Um, and so it, for, for like the first week, it was a little weird. It's always weird having a camera like right in your face, especially if you're like having a bad day or if you're tired or like we had a couple episodes where some people like passed away. And so in those moments, you're like, um, I just want to be by myself, get the camera away. But as a producer, you're like, no, get a camera in front of your face. <laughs> um, so, so it took, it took a little while to get used to, but after that, I mean, you forget they're there. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Carlos, did you have one? Yeah, um, so obviously Alaska can be quite a harsh environment to, to obviously fly in. Um, you know, we have snow in this country, but as me and Matt know, we get, we get about three flakes of snow, and that is about all we can manage. <laughs> that doesn't count as snow. It doesn't snow in England. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. So no we, don't get snow. we don't get snow in England. We get snow. Snow. Yeah. snow. That's all we get, yeah. Snow. <laughs> so what, uh, what are some of the craziest stories uh, you've heard or experienced, obviously, with the, with the whole environment of flying in Alaska? Well, it's always, I mean, where I'm from, we're right on the coast, right on the Bering Sea. So it's just, it's always windy. It's like, and, and so just like the crosswind landings are always insane. Um, my dad could line, land like on one of the runways. I mean, he could land when he's coming into the wind and it's blowing like 45, 50 knots. Like he, it, it looks like he's going backwards. Like we'll watch him. We're like, no way he's going to do this. And it's, it's, it's seriously, he looks like a helicopter. It just like drops. But, um, wow. so the, the wind, the wind's always crazy. And then the, I mean, the weather changes like in, in, in an instant, you could, it could be sunny like this and then in a minute fog. So the, I would say the weather is just pretty insane. Um, the one good thing that I love about flying in Alaska is you don't really have like airspace. Like you're, you could be flying in the middle of nowhere and well, FAA, whatever they, they could hear this one, but you could be flying like 20 feet above the tundra. And just be like, whoa, this is amazing. But there's no <laughs> cities, no villages around you for hundreds and hundreds of miles. And so you're not constantly on the radio. You don't have to constantly be, like, looking for other planes coming in. And, like, flying here in, at, near LAX is crazy. You'll be, like, I'll be flying in this little experimental plane, and then below you are, like, jumbo jets coming in. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> this is nuts. So I actually think it's way scarier flying in California than in Alaska just because I'm not used to the radio communication that goes on. 
And I yeah. love to talk. So it's weird <laughs> that like the thing that scares me about flying is talking on the radio. <laughs> yeah, and and Sean, uh, feel free to jump in. Sean Van Hatten is is uh, probably flown all kinds of different places. Have you have you ever shown, uh, flown up in Alaska, Sean? Yeah, I've been to Alaska several times. Uh, the first time was we were doing a um, we t- took six epic LTs around the world, and we came wow. through. Uh, we actually originally we were going to go into Petropavlovsk and then go over to Adak and then Anchorage, but um, when we were coming out of Petro, the weather was terrible in Adak, so we actually jumped back to Magadan. And then shot over Anadir up into Nome, landed into Nome, oh, and wow. then uh, cleared customs there and kept on going. The next trip I had was really crazy. It was about a year and a half later, uh, or two years later. Um, I took a Pitts S2B from Seattle, Washington, to Anchorage over the Alcan Highway, picked up a Pitts S2A E, and then ferried that back down the Alcan Highway. And then two weeks later, went back up to Anchorage, picked, picked up that original Pitts, and they came back down. Um, which involved all kinds of shenanigans because there's not quite enough fuel for a pit to actually make it all the way and like putting jerry cans in the front seat, strapping them in and, <laughs> and uh, landing, you know, questionably legally at some gravel strips in Canada. Yeah, all kinds of fun stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, what, Ariel, when, when you were flying up there and filming this, so you, you, were, you had already lived in California. So I think, I think every pilot, every aviator has this just – amazing dream of what flying in Alaska is like. I mean, we all want to be a bush pilot uh, for like a week. Um, yeah, for like a day. Yeah. You know, and, and there's actually a place in, I think it's Ireland or maybe it's in Scotland that they, they do the bush pilot experience for one week. You get to fly a cub on, on, on big tires and go land in some gravel strips. I'm sure it's very safe and, and pre-planned, yeah. but did you, did you know at the time like what a what a dream this was for every pilot out there. No, I didn't because because I grew up with with it and it is not glamorous. I mean, me and my sisters were the one loading my dad's plane. So you're taking you're loading like triple mailers of pop. It's like the those things are heavy and and it's negative fifty and and you're loading eggs, dropping eggs. My parents are yelling at us. Like I was at like just it's 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 just cold and you're you're trying to get in as quick as you can and load as fast as you can so for me like yeah I didn't think other people like had this dream of doing it until our show I'm like what people actually want to come up and move from like Florida to Alaska and be like flying this like treacherous weather Um, but I think it's super cool like it's awesome that people from all over the world have been interested in like the lifestyle that we live and and it is like I mean you do get a big sense of like gratification from doing it because you're helping the people out in rural Alaska. The only way in and out of our village is by airplane. So you're taking people that are sick. You're bringing people their mail. You're bringing people food. And so you do get a big sense of like pride um, by like flying for remote airlines. Wow. Yeah. A, a little bit of feedback, actually, from uh, somebody in the, in the chat room here. So Marie ZP says, uh, that was a great story of how the show got started, Ariel. We miss watching you and your family. Isn't that nice? Oh. Thank you. And I should give a shout out to the other, the creator, Tommy Baynard. He was the guy that I met on Wipeout. And um, yeah, just as, he was like super cool guy. And he just believed that we had a great story to tell. And um, yeah, and so me and him pitched it and um, got it going. But yeah, a lot of people don't know that, and it's not like, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to take credit for it, but then it was um, just a good collaboration between, like, our family and Tommy. So, speaking of, like, a great story, and, and I think 
Okay, so your dad would get mad if we said that you were the star of the show. But you were, but you know, everybody, everybody loved watching Ariel. And you're, and you're, oh my gosh, you're just your positive attitude when things were just going crazy. But I think one of the most memorable points in the show was your first flight with John Ponce. Like, and, and I think Matt's going to play out that, that, a little snippet of yeah. that video. But, do you still remember that day and and what what was oh, that the, like the solo flight yeah i my solo flight or my first flight with Ponce? that was your, your first flight with with john is i think what what okay. what matt's going to play and out i'll be honest i watched half of our first um like our premiere and then i went to the bar <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I i can't watch myself on tv i watched it for like 10 minutes and i'm like that's how I talk. That's how I walk. It looked like I have to constantly use bathroom. <laughs> and then, so, so after that, our producers were like, you're not allowed to watch any of these episodes because you just rip yourself apart. So I don't know how they cut any of the episodes. People are like, you did this. I'm like, oh, yeah, I did do that. And then so, um, I, yeah, I, I flying with Ponzo, like, man, he, the best instructor. He made me so comfortable. He is like a brother. He became like one of my best friends. Um, and he was just so patient with me. You have to, I mean, to teach this, this thing right here, like how to fly, it takes a lot of patience. Um, and then like part of me, I, I do goof off a lot, but then he made me, he was like, Hey, you have to like calm down, like be a little mature, like let's get in this together. And he would help me. We would go to these sandbars and then we would bring all my study books. And cause if I'm around people, like I, I need to, I get FOMO really bad and I have to constantly be in conversations and I want to go play with everyone. And so he would literally remove me from civil, like civilization and be like, okay, we're going to sit down on the sandbar, just me and you, and let's get through this chapter. And so like, it was definitely because of Ponce that I got my license and actually got through ground school and everything. Oh, that's the exact opposite experience of every private pilot who, <laughs> uh, not in a sandbar, had to sit in some eight foot by eight foot 1947 built uh, room with a bunch of cut off solo t-shirts uh, <laughs> with old well, chinos in the corner. <laughs> well, if you would have stuck me in a room with a bunch of guys, I would have been like passing love letters to all of them and I would have missed like all, all my like studies. <laughs> so, so yeah, you have to, I, I know my strengths and my weaknesses and uh, definitely my, one of my weaknesses is just being around people and chatting too much. And I just, I just love, and that's why I love like making TV and films is because you get, you're constantly learning about different ways of living and different cultures. And um, just, it, it's just, it blows my mind how like, different people are but how similar we all are at the same time and i don't yeah i don't know but yeah flying with ponce so fun yeah so uh, well obviously the airline era uh, alaska when you were there um obviously you, you said earlier you were kind of loading like loads of stuff onto aircraft and so the light aircraft and stuff what was one of the most craziest things you, you ever had to load onto an aircraft Ooh, ooh that's a hard one we're, we were constantly loading, like, just dogs and animals, coffins, which isn't that exciting. Um, you know what? Like, a big one that people did, it started to do. We have, like, one restaurant in northwest Alaska, like, in our area, which is a pizza place. So people from different villages would order pizza. And then this would turn out to be, like, a $100 pizza. I'm like, really? Do you guys want pizza that bad? But, um, yeah, and so I don't... 
I mean, I know how I know how they feel. I'll be honest. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we we didn't. I mean, you're you're loading essentials. There was a crap ton of diapers, a lot of pop, a lot of Doritos, a lot of ramen, a lot of milk, um, a lot of eggs. And I'm sorry if you're if you're watching this and I dropped all your eggs because that happened a lot. Um, but just a lot of like, just a lot of essentials that people need. So there wasn't really a lot of things that we were like, that's really weird. And, and, and I'm sure if it was weird, they had it wrapped up and I, I didn't break those rules. I never looked in people's luggage and stuff. And so there were times where I could like jiggle boxes and like, I know what's in here, but couldn't, couldn't open it. <laughs> There, there was an episode, uh, Era, that you were in where you were on, I think it was one of your first solo flights, and the way the, way the, the episode show it and stuff, you had, I think you had a lot of cr- uh, crosswind uh, when you were landing, when you are on your own, and it was really tense. You know, you're watching the, the, you're watching the, the program on telly, and I'm like, oh, my God, Era. Was it, was it really as, like, as really as... It was intense? worse. It was worse. I, uh, yeah. Well, one, they had my mom mic'd on the ground. And yeah. that's why, that's, if you rewatch that part, because I, I did watch a little solo clip on YouTube. Um, but the whole time it's just beep, 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 because <laughs> my mom is going crazy. And so, so I was doing my solo flight. So you three takes off and landings. My first two, I was like, I can do this. Like, this is awesome. This is so cool. I'm in the plane by myself. Like, like, what, what? what a feeling to be like, okay, I have my life in my hands. My dad can't come up here and rescue me. My mom can't come in and like console me. Like, this is me. Like I got, like, I have to do this. Um, and so yeah, the first two are great. I'm coming around to the second one or the third, um, land, or I think I was like, I just took off and I was coming up and then I was turning, like, I think I was turning downwind and then my radios died like something like my radios quit working and then the wind switched. And so I'm, and then you're like, you're, you just get frazzled. So I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, why am I drifting so far away from like the runway? Why is it so far away now? I'm like, Oh crap. And then, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out how to get my radios working. And so I go and I try to land. Couldn't, couldn't get to the runway. Like I just, like I, I was like, I cannot land this thing. So I went around again and then I'm sweating and I'm just like, Oh crap, this is not good. And so like I come in and I then I was just like I it's getting windier, so I'm just gonna lay this baby down. And so I go like I'm just like ah and I'm just like crabbing almost and then I'm just like crap. And in the in like the footage though, I close my eyes. I'm just like ah! <laughs> and then I'm like, oh my god. But then I just oh my god, the best feeling in the world was when it just like bounced and then it was like, Okay, not gonna like ruin this plane. I'm still alive. I'm still here. Like, and then, yeah, so that was scary. And that definitely humbled me because those first two, I was like, I got this. This is super easy. Why, why do people make such a big deal about it? And then that third one, I was like, oh, geez, like, this is not good. Um, so yeah, that was a little scary, but, um, yeah. And so, yeah, it was definitely not planned. And, um, the producers were like, yeah, you're going to go up and do a couple more. We need to get some other, like some other shots. And I'm like, nope, I am done for the day. <laughs> like, I need to go and like wipe the sweat off of everything and, um, let's do something else. You know, what's funny is I think he just stole Sean's thunder. Cause Sean was going to talk to us about one, uh, one of his maydays that he had, uh, as a Reno air race pilot, but Sean, that pretty much sums it up, right? You just kind of went, Oh crap, close your eyes and bounce down the runway. Right. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, That's pretty the much 15 second version. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Sean, do you, so do you race the, um, in Reno? Yeah, I race in the sport class at Reno. I've uh, been racing there about four years, uh, formation instructor, check pilot, and all that kind of fun stuff. I've been typically racing top of the silver, bottom of the gold, so 300 to 350 mile an hour range. Oh, so cool. I wonder if I saw you. I used to go, I've been there a couple times to watch Pete race the, um, Pete oh, you know, Pete, Pete Yeah, I yeah. love him. So we're always in his, like, pit. This, like, yep. pure, yeah, I'm, I'm the I'm, annoying one. That's probably way too loud and excited. But, I'm sure um, we've run into each other. You know, we always camp on the um, on the grounds there. We're right next to Camp Pete, so oh yay! Yeah, oh, we've perfect. definitely run well, into when, each other. For next Reno, when it happens again, it's going to happen. We'll we'll have yep. a beer together. Sounds perfect. great. Yeah, come on over to Team Havoc. We'll uh, we'll definitely hook you up with a beer or two. Oh, awesome! Cool. Well, I'm making it really sound that I love 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 the drinks. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, they're, yeah, beer. Yeah, yeah, anybody ever gets sponsor this? <laughs> If anybody ever gets a chance to come out to Reno, there there is the air racing, which I don't know, it's a pretty good part of the day, but it's really all the background. It's the hanging out in the hangars. Reno is probably one of the most intimate aviation experiences you can have where you can hang out with the fans, the crews, the pilots and everybody. And then and then once the gates shut, there are some awesome after parties. Okay. Yeah. I'm under, oh. you, you do you do realize I'm under you are now hooking us up for that, don't you? You realize that. That's Absolutely. That. Yeah. We will do that. Sean <laughs> yeah. Sean well, and I will do that for yeah. you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Armando's yeah. You one of our star to. star ramp guys and you know the the whole event wouldn't happen, especially in the sport class, without dedication of volunteers like himself. So yeah, he's if there's somebody that can hook you up. It's him for sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, oh. and, and that is the, honestly the, the reason that, that we had to make the decision to cancel Reno this year is it is just like Oshkosh, just like Sun and Fun. It is volunteer driven. And, you know, it was just too much of a risk this year to put um, a lot of our retire, uh, retiree volunteers uh, in that kind of, you know, personal risk. But mm. um, so, Ariel, everybody that listens to this show will have obviously watched the entire season or the all, all seasons of Flying Wild Alaska probably multiple times, probably have posters up on the wall. Kids still do that. But I, I actually wanted to talk to you about some of your efforts after the show. So um, a, a little bit about Native Shorts, you know, you hosting Native Shorts and then uh, Into America's Wild, your choice how we want to do this. And, and something that's really important to us on this show is uh, Popping Bubbles. Right, because we we are just complete advocates of making sure that people get the help that they need, um, especially you know some of, some of our uh, partner podcasts have done some features on on mental health and even alcoholism in aviation and, and just these things that were normally taboo subjects. But but I, I'd like for you to take a second to talk to us about popping bubbles. Um, and your efforts with that but um, feel free to like we'll start with native shorts because that was kind of the first thing that you did so why was that project particularly important to you that one that one well my co-host bird running water just is amazing and he's been a good friend and so he came up with the idea because he works with Sundance Institute's Native American and Indigenous program and so um I just love the concept because there's so many stories around the world told by indigenous filmmakers that don't get seen. And so it's just a way to like, just get some diversity out there and just show that like, man, there's some amazing storytellers all over like, um, like the Maori tribes in New Zealand, 
um, like just all over northern Canada. There are some from Ireland. Like there's just like such great storytellers. But so Native Shorts is just Native Short Stories. I, I really was trying to pitch Native Pants for the like the before. <laughs> and I was like, so we can do feature films. And what we call Native Pants. But um, yeah, so that one is just fun. And I think it's just really important for all people to be able to share stories. And um, they're really cool, though. You could find them, I believe it's on FNX, um, tv.com um, or you just google native shorts and then you should be able to watch the episode and there's an app to watch uh, um every yeah oh, oh cool awesome perfect yeah we'll put um, some links in the show notes so and, cool and, and you know and and at, at the same time that flying wild alaska was happening or, or at least airing the uh, the whole alaska thing was so um just prevalent. And so we had some other sister shows that we won't mention their shows, but, mm-hmm. but, it, but Alaska was featured heavily for, for a couple of years up there. But yeah. one of the things that we saw in some of those other shows, I remember Alaska state troopers was one of the shows, right? Um, I love that show, but that show particularly highlighted some of the challenges of living in remote areas, which, which kind of is, is one of the reasons you, you started popping bubbles, isn't oh. it? Yeah, so, um, no, it is, and so one thing really quick, so our show, what was really important for our family and for our producers and our whole team was just to be super authentic and just to show how life is in rural Alaska, and it's not all penguins and polar bears, like, it's it's hard, it's like, a, it's a hard um, lifestyle, I mean, you're isolated, you're in the middle of nowhere, like, they're um, it's just, I mean, the weather, the darkness, the lack of like good nutritious food, like there's so much. And so we, we wanted to just for it to be real. And I think our team did a really good job on keeping it. Like it wasn't produ- like overproduced. Um, there was, I think by season three, we would have to like try to think of not, we wouldn't think of storylines, but we would be like, Hey, I wonder if Ariel and her sister went to the cabin what would happen? And so they'd be like, hey, you should invite your sister to go camping in your cabin this weekend. So it would be stuff like that. And that's, um, and that's as produced as it would get. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really proud of how Flying Wild turned out. But I think uh, there was an episode that ta- talked about suicide. And so for me, um, I've lost over 30, I think I started, stopped counting at like 37 friends. I lost over half my class to suicide. And so when my best friend did it, I was just so confused because he, we like went to prom together. Like he was in college, had a girlfriend, so smart, very handsome, like charismatic. And then just one day decided to end his life. And so that just like, it just pushed me over the edge and I just was fed up. And I'm like, we need to figure out like why this is happening to our people, why this is happening so often. Like why, why, why? And the more I ask that question, the more you realize that no one knows the answer and we still don't. But for me, in order to prevent suicide, you have to show people that life is worth living. And life is like a roller coaster. It's You're going to have some amazing high times, and it's going to be so fun. But prepare yourself because you're going to be sad. And But in, in those low times, know that, man, put your hands up because it's going to be so exciting again. And just know that you're going to go up and down. But so for me, in order to prevent suicide, you have to show people that life is worth living. You have to show kids that. Hey, like, look at me. I grew up in this little village and now I'm living my dream. I want to be Eskimo Oprah and I'm going to be Eskimo Oprah. <laughs> like, like no one's going to hold you back just because you're like from a small community, just because you look a certain way, just because you talk a certain way. And so the name came, I was talking with a, I think a news 
program in Canada when I was promoting it, but I was talking about how like all of us live in our own little bubble. We're scared to leave our village, to talk to people that look different from us, to talk to people that believe in different religions or politics, to um, try new things, to like be afraid. And we'd be so much happier if we just popped each other's bubbles. And so that's where the name came up. And yeah, and now we do a lot of motivational speaking tours. I'm actually so excited because I'm teaming up with the company that does telehealth. And so now we're working on bringing free like therapy to the villages. So people, all you need is a phone and you could talk to someone, a professional, because we all need help. Like I don't wake up every day with like rainbows and Skittles coming out of like my nostrils. Like some days I'm just like a little bummed. And so I'm like, I want someone to talk to. And so it's that whole thing is like, it's okay to ask for help. We all need it. And, um, and yeah. And like for the little kids, it's like, man, have dreams, like set goals for yourself. Like, dream big and and you'll have an awesome life and then no like coping skills like you're gonna lose loved ones you're gonna break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend you're going to like wake up on the wrong side of the day and that shouldn't be the reason you end your life because it's hard um and so yeah i could go on and on but i won't rap, ramble anymore yeah i mean know that uh, so i did a 21 year career in the US Air Force and we often asked the same questions ourselves. We would try to find patterns, we would try to find indicators, um, and largely we discovered that that it wasn't it wasn't that easy. There were there everybody has their own journey and everybody has their own path that leads them to to uh to that you know that yeah. point in their lives. But so you so you've continued on and you said like one of the things that you love doing is just highlighting how basically how good it is to be alive. So, and, yeah. and that, you know, I'll let you talk about into American, into America as well, because we, we got to tie it to aviation somehow. So I yeah. did do a little bit of digging and I found out that it was partially sponsored by United Airlines. So easy yeah. plug for United Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> so, the people at United were so great too. I got to, we promoting the film for that short period that we did. I got to hang out with a, a lot of like the corporate United people and they were really fun. So, Ariel, Matt's got some questions that have come from our uh, chat room, live chat room viewers. Uh, Indeed, yeah. So, ironically, we'll start with with another namesake. So, this this guy's also called Matt Smith, so that's Ooh. slightly odd. Uh, but uh, there we are. This could get very confusing. Uh, so, uh, his question actually is, uh, when when did you feel uh, most in danger and why? I presume he's sort of talking about what, like flying and things like that. Flying? Yeah, I was like, mm, flying or lice? very different <laughs> i mean we'll, t- we'll take answers for both that's that's fine as well <laughs> no, so flying my solo flight that was actually pretty terrifying um my cross-country flight that one was i got just way off course and then um again like i don't know my plane had horrible radio comms and so that one i lost course and then my radios went bad again so that was a little scary but i just need to go and find the ocean and then because villages are all along the ocean. And so I figured that one out. But that was pretty terrifying. Um, other than that, I've been pretty fortunate to, um, like, be pretty safe up in the air. And and I, I make it seem like I'm pretty dingy and, like, a like doofus. But um, when I'm in the plane, I, I, I put my big lady pants on and try to be professional. So, um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, need to, I need to at some point. And so, yeah. And I want to live. And so I, I know how dangerous I know how dangerous flying could be, especially in Alaska. Oh, and yeah. so um yeah, I, I definitely take it seriously. 
I bet. Uh, Graham is asking in the chat room, saying, what's the most interesting place that you've ever landed, both as a passenger and a pilot? Um, well, I mean, I'm still a private pilot, so I haven't landed in anything. Like, just at our cabin, like, we have a little cabin um, out in the boonies in Alaska near our village. It's like a 25-minute plane ride from our village. So landing there was pretty cool. It's just a, um, just a, like a little dirt landing strip. Um, landing with my dad in the mountains is the best thing ever. Um, you're, you're just like, e there's no way you could land on that. And you're like, oh, my God, we just landed. How'd that happen? But, um, so landing with my dad is pretty phenomenal, though. He's such a good pilot. And he, um, yeah, and he's always, like, just constantly looking for landing strips, sandbars and little, like, mountain ridge lines. And, yeah, it's, I, I just love flying with my dad. Oh, wait, time out. There was another fun one, too. Um, the North Captiva outside of Florida. Um, that was cool because I shot a little thing with M0A. Plug for M0A. Um, they, <laughs> it's just like, isn't, I mean, like, the water is so blue and it's so pretty and it's warm. So, and it, you're landing on this tiny little island, um, which was really fun. So that was pretty neat. Wow. <laughs> uh, Richard King is asking, uh, Ariel, is Jim still flying his Cessna 180? <laughs> oh yeah, that's his baby. Every day, he. Um, I was just with him like a week ago, and he had to fly his 207 into Anchorage, and he swapped it out for his 180, and now he has awesome like bush tires on it. But yeah, he won't let me go near that thing <laughs> without him. <laughs> I know. I think he thinks if I just stare at it, I'm going to ruin it. So I'm not allowed near that plane without without him. <laughs> oh, to, to be fair, I think a lot of pilots that own an airplane. That, that's how the case is. Be like, yeah, nobody's actually allowed to touch this airplane. Yeah. But me. <laughs> it was actually funny, though. So I'm doing another show, or it's just an episode on a show called Know Her Name. And it's, we're doing an episode on Amelia Earhart. Oh, and wow. so we needed a, we needed some footage, like, quickly um, with me and my dad. So we're in there. He only has one yoke. Like, first, the other one fell off. And so I'm like, Dad, I need it to, like, sort of look like I'm flying. And he's like, well, just jump over on my side. We're in the air. And I'm like, Dad, and there's duct tape all over because there's holes everywhere in his plane. So, yeah, my dad's flying around with, like, one yoke holes in his plane. And I'm like, I think you could probably afford to maybe, like, get a new yoke and, like, some, like, better tape <laughs> or something. But, well, the, yeah. Gaffer tape, that'll, that'll mend anything. If you, if you oh, can, they say if you can't mend it with gaffer tape, you can't mend it at all. That's the end of it. Oh, yeah. and it, well, the, well, I the, grew up like my, yeah, oh, sorry. I was going to say the alternative is lease it back to a flight school and then it, it fit right in with the rest of the, <laughs> the training fleet. The <laughs> yeah, he, he's so funny. I just grew up, I mean, he grew, like, just duct tape everywhere. Like, he, like I was saying when I was younger, like, it's so cold where we're at, but he didn't get a heater for his plane. Me and my sisters would have to get out our hair dryers and go and sit and, like, heat up his engine with a hair dryer before he went to work. And that was, like, part of our job before going to school was to go and, like, thaw out his engine. <laughs> wow. I mean, just crazy. Uh, we've we'll, we'll got uh, one more question, uh, a couple more questions, sorry, from the chat room. Uh, so this is from uh, Tony saying, question for Ariel, what's the formula for making entertaining TV whilst keeping it realistic? There's a challenge for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, just being authentic. Like, I think everyone has a story to tell. And if you're curious enough about, I think, people in the world, you could pull out the stories and learn from other people. But, like, for me, it's just, like, I know, like, one, our family was in a unique situation because our 
my dad and mom's airline is so um, essential. And so, like, you need you need good characters. You need a like unique situation, and um, yeah, and then you need a good format for like for the story to be told. And so, Discovery Channel was the right timing. It was um, like yeah, and this like ours our, like I said, our show wasn't overproduced. We were honest, and we just had fun. Like I love my parents. It sounds so corny and cheesy, but they are like my best friends. My sisters are my best friends. Our pilots, like, I mean, I'm so lucky to, I have, like, over 70 brothers and sisters. Like, all our, most of our pilots ended up living with us while they're doing their training. So, I'm just lucky to have such a great family and uh, amazing friends and people that challenged me and people that would tell me to, like, tone it down if I get too, like, excited about things. And my dad definitely brings me back down to earth because he says I'm overconfident in everything that I do. Um, and so I, yeah, if I, he's like, man, you're, you're an addict to adrenaline, which I am. And so it's just like, I constantly have to just like, okay, is, is, am I chasing this feeling or what's going on with me? Um, but yeah, I think that's to go back to your question. You need good characters. You need good stories. You need a unique situation for people. And then you need the right timing is everything too. Uh, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it, really? Because uh, you want it to be entertaining, but of course, you know, it's very common, isn't it, for things to be over-dramatised mm -hmm. or, you know, careful editing, if you done, if you like, to make things perhaps yeah. appear differently to how it actually happened, things like that. Yeah, and also my dad got the final say in the footage because, I mean, he's a president of this big company. He cares so much about his employees, so he, he needed to make sure, like, is everything legal are the producers pushing you guys too hard to get a good story like number one thing is safety in our flying like in in the airline business and so like he he was really good at being like nope they're not doing that nope not doing that sure we could do that but let's do it this way okay that's a really good idea but it's not legal let's like figure out a different way to tell the story um so he was great at um like doing like just managing like stories versus safety versus like all of that. And then, and also like my parents, like no one in our family wanted, like we weren't like chasing to be a movie star or like none of us fight or are dramatic. And like, we're, we're not, we like each other. And like, we, we don't argue. Like if we disagree with things, we figure out a civil way to like overcome like different obstacles. And so, I mean, in some ways, like we're the worst family to be on TV because we're not, we're not going to like, backstab each other or like me and my mom like geez number one you would never want to fight with my mom um so we knew that very early on not to make her mad and then my dad is the most calm human being on the planet like you're you're never going to get him to like get riled up and so um yeah so I, it was weird that like that people liked watching us because like in our eyes we are sort of just like like this or normal but um but i think the i mean this the storylines like were all really interesting because it is a unique place that we live in and I'm like really happy that I grew up where I grew up. Well, honestly, Errol, the, the story, I mean, we could, uh, we, we needed to extend the show by at least three hours, I think. And just have <laughs> Invite me back. Hours. Invite me back. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll Anytime. definitely have you Absolutely. back. Yeah, yeah, definitely have you back. But, um, no, it's been so nice to talk to you, Aaron, and I'm, I'm really, on behalf of all the team, you know, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and joining us and taking time out of your beautiful day there. No, thank you guys so much. And I'll plug one more thing. There's a new cartoon coming out on Fox, Ooh. and I'm a little voice. It's called The Great North. 
Um, and so that one, we just got picked up for our second season. But the first season should start airing in the next, like, couple weeks, I believe. But um, that, that's my one plug for right now. And then we have, a, and then we have another animated um, series coming out as, as well. I guess people think I have a weird voice. And so I've been doing a lot with... Um, not weird. <laughs> Inter- interesting with, voice. Not weird. Interesting. That, interest, that's, yes, an interesting, yeah. interesting voice. So now, yeah, I'm getting into animation. And I'm just... Yeah, I love, like, getting kids just excited. And I like making people laugh. And so, um, yeah, so that's where that's going. And I'm going to keep flying. I still have my private license. I'm, like, I still go flying when I go home. And all my buddies have super cubs. And we'll go flying. And I'll start posting more pictures of those um, adventures. So before we go and let you go, get back to your uh, to your busy day on the beach, <laughs> Ariel. One last. Hey, question. I'm, I'm working right now. <laughs> one last question. <laughs> one last question, and uh, we'll let Armando ask. Uh, it's the all important last question that we ask all our guest pilots and guests that we have on the show. We we do we do very rarely have two guests on at on the same show. So Sean earmuffs. Uh, Earmuff Sean. Okay. <laughs> Ariel, <laughs> if money was no object. And you could fly any aircraft in the world, past, present, or future. What aircraft would that be? Yeah, man, I'm in love. I like the Beaver. Like the yeah, those are those are so fun. My dad used to have this Beach 18. Um, oh yeah, that that's he a classic. To, um, that one, that I I would love to fly that plane or an Albatross. Just to be able to take all your buddies and load up the albatross with all your friends, <laughs> coolers of beer, and then go land on like the lake and just hang out and jump off the wings and have a party, and then have your friend fly back. That'd that'd be that'd be so fun. But yeah, I, like I love um, yeah, I love all those three planes. I think would be my my top three. I don't need to go super fast. I just I like to be able to take like land in fun places and be able to like carry some friends with me. I like your style. All three of those are radial engine twins. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's great. What a wonderful answer. So, Ariel, on behalf of all the team here at P2K, a big thanks for coming on the show. uh, Quick, how how can they follow you on social media? I was getting to that bit. I was getting to that bit. Don't panic. Don't panic. Yeah, so where can... I thought you weren't going to ask this question. No. Where where can... if, If anyone, if anyone doesn't know where you are at the minute on social media, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, it's all pretty simple. It's just at Ariel Tweedo, and Tweedo is with one E, T-W-E-T-O. It's Norwegian. It's supposed to be Tobedo. Excellent choice, Armando, and for me as well. It's, it's definitely up there, my uh, top favorite there. And as same, I'm the same as you. You know, I remember switching on to the Discovery Channel and um, absolutely being well and truly hooked to that series uh, when it was on there, loved it, absolutely loved it, and it was great to see her as well. When Amando to actually, when she actually uh, got her, her pilot's license during the show, it was really good. So, Matt, we're going to go to you next over in the studio. Um, what was your highlight or favourite part of uh, of the year? Well, one of the series that I'm most loving being part of is the uh, Plain Truth uh, segment that we've been doing with Captain Alan. I'm 
delighted to say that they're, they're going down really well and as I say, it's a personal favourite of your father's at the end of the day so we have to keep doing them if only for that reason do we not uh, but uh, yeah one of the things that I, I really enjoyed from that series uh, which started this year um, was obviously Captain Al's explanations are always fantastic but on one particular episode we were joined uh, f- was certainly to myself and Carlos uh, a, a gentleman who quite often uh, deputises shall we say to do the uh, forecasting for our local BBC station, Look East. And, uh, yeah, basically, myself, Captain Al and Dan Holly had a lovely chat all about weather. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Another Plain Truths. And this week, we're going to be talking about weather. That's quite a broad subject, isn't it? Joining me, as always, is my friend, your friend, it is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi, Captain Al. A very good evening, Matt. (laughs) Thanks for joining us, as always. And I'm delighted to say that joining us again this week is the lovely chap that is Dan Holly. Hi, Dan. You're too kind, Matt. Good evening. How are you? Uh, Living life's eternal dream every single day. There we are. (laughs) So uh, now we can't have uh, access to an actual trained meteorologist uh, and not talk about weather. So the question that I have for you, gentlemen, this evening is weather. How is that data collected? And then how is it turned into the charts that I know that Al has to use to decide um, essentially what route they're going to take, you know, avoiding things like thunderstorms? Now, I appreciate this is a really broad subject here but in sort of like languages that very stupid people like me can understand how is the data uh, i know it's obviously it's data that, that that is put together if you like to produce um what you turn into maps but basically what is the process to generate the forecast that we see on the telly yeah so basically we need measurements um that comes obviously from aircraft but also Uh, quite a lot from weather balloons. Um, They go up twice a day uh, in many locations around the world. There's about five locations in the UK and two in Ireland that go up at midnight and midday. And and they measure the the temperature, the pressure, humidity and so forth at every level going all the way up uh, to the top of the troposphere, which is the lowest layer of the atmosphere where all the weather happens. Um, So you've got weather balloons, you've got aircraft, you've got buoys uh, floating out over the sea, which are constantly taking measurements. Land-based weather stations, there's, there's lo- loads of them around uh, many parts of Europe in particular and also parts of North America. Um, and then you've got things like radar data, which is primarily looking at sort of where it's raining. That gets fed into some models. Satellite data as well, constantly monitoring from space all the various things that are going on around the world as well. So lots and lots of different data sets. They all get fed into essentially a computer model Um, There are many different computer models, all run by the different national Met agencies uh, around the world as well. And and even here at WeatherQuest, we run our own uh, computer model primarily focused on the UK. So all of this observational data gets fed into a numerical weather prediction model. And basically a bunch of calculations are then run using this data to try and then simulate what the weather will do going forward in time. But we always say your, your forecast is only as good as the data you actually put into it at the beginning. So if you're missing a lot of data right now, then we won't have a clear understanding as to what's going on right now in order to then work out what's going to happen uh, further down the line. So observations are crucial. Run these calculations forward and ultimately you get some output at the other end. Again, another data set telling you what's going to happen at any location around the world 
at so many hours further ahead into the future. So that data that uh, you've essentially collated and fed into a machine, how does, how does that then turn into the forecast that, that we all see on television? And I know you do a little bit of uh, deputising uh, for our local uh, Look East weather here in, in the east of England. So, I mean, how, how do you go from that data, if you like, to, to predicting what's going to happen, say, tomorrow? Yeah, so the, the data from these computer models comes out. They usually run about four times a day. So every six hours, we get new data coming in. Um, it comes in what we call grid format or net CDF. They're just basically different formats for data sets. And from that, we can then run scripts to be able to take that data and plot it into a map form so that then we can see what these models are suggesting, where the low cloud will be, where the showers and thunderstorms may develop and, and so forth. And then from these maps, we are then able then to see the progression of these weather features uh, across the UK or indeed elsewhere around the world as well. So we would use these these maps that come from the models uh, to make a forecast, both in, in a visual sense, such as on TV, but also then to write them into scripts for radio and, and for newspapers and that sort of thing as well. And, and obviously this data is crucial for other sectors such as agriculture and indeed avi aviation as well. Indeed, and uh, while we're talking about uh, aviation, the, that information presumably is crucial to you, Al, when it comes to deciding where you're going to, uh, what, what route you're going to take, for example, if you're, if you're flying to, let's say, Hungary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, an awful lot of this is delegated to computer flight planning. So there are a variety of elements to be considered. Uh, first of all, the weather at the point of departure the on-route weather, and the weather at the destination. So, for example, the weather at the point of departure, if it's particularly foggy, then there are going to be delays in departure because the number of aircraft movements will be substantially less than in good visibility. Then the on-route weather, well, that's a couple of factors. Uh, Optimising the route to make use of the upper atmosphere winds, so uh, if we can tag along a jet stream, so that will be a, a column of fast moving air that will be pushing us along. So increasing our speed through the air, uh, thereby reducing the time and the amount of fuel that we burn. Or conversely, if there are headwinds trying to minimize the impact that they might take. And as we've talked about in, in other aspects, that's all three dimensional. So you've got to uh, you know, think vertically and laterally uh, because just deviating, you know, 50 or 60 miles laterally could be the difference between a 60 knot headwind and a 10 knot tailwind. And similarly, uh, in, in a vertical profile, uh, then there's a considerations of significant weather en route. So uh, thunderstorms, uh, turbulence, uh, icing is a, is a big factor. Uh, less so for jet aircraft that are typically flying at high altitudes, but when we have to descend uh, into the lower atmosphere, icing is a consideration. And then whether a destination, so whether it be uh, windy, as we've experienced in recent days here in the UK, that can have a, a significant effect. Um, you know, we had uh, last year, we had Storm Kira that had quite a phenomenal effect on uh, aviation in the UK and in the near continent. Um, I was lucky or unlucky, depending on which side of the fence you set on to be flying on one of the days of Storm Kira. So that was quite entertaining, to say the very least. Um, then you have, you know, snow, ice, 
fog, uh, probably outside of the realms of meteorology of plagues of locusts. Um, but uh, <laughs> you, uh, wait, are, they, they don't are, predict locusts, honestly. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, but there are factors that would be reported that are outside of uh, typical meteorology. Um, so, um, uh, in Met reports for aviation, would be um, smoke. So, if you you know operating somewhere to an airport that's being adversely affected by smoke, so forest fires or uh, industrial fires, they would be in the Met report. And uh, the Met observations for uh, aviation are done uh, half hourly. And as Dan mentioned, the simulations, if you like, the modeling that's done, that's updated four times a day, we use those updates in flight for updated uh, upper winds. So if the wind model changes quite significantly, we'll update those in flight um, so that we get a real-time update as to uh, how the winds are going to affect us for the flight. Typically, typically across Europe, they don't change a lot. Uh, once or twice, they have changed by a couple of minutes in flight time. Um, so, yeah, th th there's an awful lot. And uh, ever-increasingly at airports these days, met observations are actually done by uh, automatic means. So, unfortunately, it used to be the job of air traffic controllers to go out and do the met observations. <laughs> They're increasingly done automatically. But, yeah, um, whether and aviation are, are go hand in glove with each other it, it's quite a big factor in what we do and uh, you know severe weather is is a challenge but so is you know forecasting for example the location of thunderstorms i'd imagine dan that's that's quite a challenge to accurately predict the start and end time and geographic location of a thunderstorm yeah, that's right. And and recently in the UK, we've had a, a whole week of active thunderstorms. Um, and, and as you say, trying to pinpoint exactly where they'll form is, is quite crucial. And, and worth uh, stressing, I guess, the models we've talked about here, as I say, every different Met agency runs their own model. And each of those models has slightly different physics that's used, um, slightly different equations. So actually, the output that comes out the other end uh, may differ slightly between each model. So, you know, we look at about 10 different models, I guess, and, and they run every six hours as well. And we are trying to make a forecast from all of these different models and trying to come to some sort of consensus of what the most likely outcome is going to be. But one model may have a thunderstorm over Manchester, for example, whereas another one may have it over Birmingham. So it's trying to, to come up with the, the most likely scenario. Is it going to be Manchester? Is it going to be Birmingham? Or is it somewhere in between? Um, so these models trying to pinpoint where these thunderstorms are. But as a forecaster, you use, uh, I guess, sort of experience over the years as to which of these models tends to handle certain situations better. Um, and then that may sway your, your decision as to which one you perhaps favor to drive the, the story going forward in time. Um, but when it comes to thunderstorms, we often describe it as a bit like uh, a pan of water on, on a stove, for example, on the hob. If you turn the hob on and heat that water, you know bubbles are going to appear at some point, but you don't quite know exactly where the first bubble is going to appear. And it's the same with, the, with convection and thunderstorms. You know the risk is there. The atmosphere is primed for those to develop. You don't quite know exactly where they are. So quite often you're looking for surface features if they're what we call surface-based thunderstorms. And that is that they are driven by what's going on at ground level. So the temperature is rising during the day. 
uh, we get what we call wind convergence, which is where if the surface pattern is quite slack, the winds may come together in certain areas, and that coming together of the winds forces some air to rise, and that's where you sometimes generate thunderstorms, and that's particularly crucial over high ground, for example. You quite often see these showers and storms develop, developing over hills and mountains. Um, so that, that's the main thing you can look at. You can say, yeah, I think the Chilterns probably will develop these today. And then obviously on top of that, you've got to then work out if they develop here, where will the steering winds blow them? And, and will they then drift perhaps close to an airport further down the line? So there's lots to, to play for. And quite often when there are thunderstorms in the forecast, it tends to be a bit more broad brush. You can highlight certain areas where you think they are most likely to, to develop. So certain parts of counties, for example, um, but you couldn't say specifically, I think there will be one in Manchester at three o'clock in the afternoon. You would probably say something like there's a risk of them between, say, one o'clock and, and five o'clock. And yeah, one may turn up at three o'clock, but at least you sort of broaden that risk just in case one were to develop slightly early or, or come in slightly later in the day. Or if you live where we do, you get very excited because it says <laughs> there's going to be thunderstorms and then you get one clap and then that's literally it and you're devastated yep. for the rest of the day. But that's that's the joys of living on the Norfolk Suffolk border, I suspect. Um, so uh, just, just so the... Dan, sorry, sorry, I Go was on. going to say, Dan, how do you feel about whether forecast should be, uh, if you like, the pint glass half full or half empty? Mm. <laughs> because one of the, the challenges that we face in aviation, um, obviously we, we have uh, coded forecasts because they all go back to teletype machines and, and aviation really hasn't advanced very much. So we're still quite <laughs> regimented in, in, in our coding of uh, Is it like the forecasts. shipping forecast, is it? <laughs> well, very much so, yes. Um, so we have, uh, you know, prob 30, so a 30% chance so we will quite often see in the forecast for, um, you know, say, for example, just about every airport in the UK, you know, 30% chance of the worst weather that you've ever had in your life. <laughs> and it will be just for every airport. So it's always been, I mean, it's a fine balance, of course, because as a, as a forecaster, you know, you're only as good as your last forecast. It's, it's a bit like being a pilot and landings. So, you know, we're, we're, we're in the UK, we're very minded of a very, you know, famous weather forecaster who went on, you know, national TV and said, there is no hurricane, it's not going to happen. Oh, poor and... Michael Fish. He'll never be allowed to live that down, will he? <laughs> but quite clearly, if he'd gone the other side of the, the pint glass, and said, yeah, absolutely, we, you know, as a country, we're going to be destroyed by this, you know, this hurricane. <laughs> you know, th there is that happy ground in the middle, but one of the risks in being um, unduly negative in forecasting is that you just create this layer of what we call Prob 30 tempo, and we just go, yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's a Prob 30 temporarily, and it's just you might as well just have omitted it from the forecast. So I was just puzzled as if you were a half-full or half-empty forecaster. I was always taught at the beginning of my career by, by Jim, my, my uh, old boss, that uh, especially when it comes to the tourism industry, um, Easter in particular, that's, like, that's considered the beginning of the, the sort of tourism season, if you like, in the UK, um, to always be very careful about how you word the forecast around that time, but really any time during the year, um, and to be sort of unbiased, so, you know, some people may want rain and others may not. So 
we, we tend not to, to sway either side, really. We just tell it like it is. And if we think there's a risk of showers, yeah, we will mention them, but uh, perhaps not mention them too much. So to make it sound like a negative forecast. Um, but I guess it depends on whether we felt that risk was sort of if there's a 10% chance of a shower, then we would heavily stress most places will stay dry and, and miss those showers. Uh, whereas if we felt like there was an 80% chance or most of the region would see them, then we would probably go a bit more heavy on, on the shower side of things. So, you know, I can certainly understand whenever you see Prop 30 in your TAFs and so forth that, um, you know, you see that all the time. And so you, it almost gets into sort of a cry wolf syndrome doesn't it because you it does yeah i mean like i say well, an awful lot of the time i just go prop 30 tempo we'll ignore that um because when if you know and you will see it um you know just about every uk airport has this you know prop 30 tempo 1500 meters in heavy rain and you go okay right but we we can either work on a basis that you know we could be exceptionally unlucky and every airport is going to be out of limits <laughs> in the UK. So where are we going to go to? Because they've all got yes. the same forecast. And, and you can't go to France because they're on strike. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, the French are quite interesting, actually. The French oh, in their aviation what have I started? forecast, <laughs> um, they will forecast the maximum temperature. Oh, okay. And they will actually give you temperature forecasts for the day, which is quite interesting. Um, and very few other places in the world will do that. But the French are quite good at forecasting temperature. Oh, well, Just a bit of... Yeah. Every day is a school day. Now, now you've, yeah, yeah. you've mentioned this equated way that you receive the data when you're in. So presumably, so presumably when you're receiving some kind of like, I mean, how do you receive the, the, the updates of weather when you're actually in the air? Because, um, I mean, presumably you can't get 4G signal and, and stuff up there. So, I mean, how are you receiving the, the weather data in flight? Um, well, we're fortunate in that there are satellites okay. and we're also fortunate that over land masses we have pretty good VHF radio coverage. Um, so we have data link. So yeah, the aircraft are uh, not connected to the internet per se, um, but we're connected to a commercial organization called CETA who provide all sorts of data to airlines and one of the data streams that they provide is, is weather. So via CETA, we can uh, uh, update the uh, on-route winds and we can also get uh, updates of the terminal area forecasts and the METARs, which are the actual MET reports. So the METARs are done uh, every half hour. Uh, in the UK, they're done at 20 past and at 10 to the hour. In other parts of the world, they do them on the hour. And uh, we can also receive uh, the ATIS broadcast as well via data, so uh, we're reasonably well connected. And, and then is there uh, much uh, of a? Do you have, has there been many scenarios where you've actually had to change your route based on the data that you've received in flight? Um, not really, because what we don't have uh, in my airline is the ability to update the significant weather charts uh, because we don't have access to the internet per se. Uh, lots of aircraft do. So uh, Pip at Safe Jets, he's got, you know, the whole singing, whole dancing internet. So he can get uh, real-time updates of significant weather. To be honest, um, in Europe, they don't change an awful lot. I know in the United States, uh, they're a bit more proactive in reporting weather phenomena, especially turbulence. So 
there's a bit more uh, pilot reporting of weather phenomena there. Um, it probably is a bit more relevant if you're flying halfway around the world. And when I used to do that, we would quite routinely, uh, you know, leave somewhere in the southern hemisphere having no idea what the forecast was actually going to be for London because <laughs> when we were leaving, um, the forecast for our arrival time actually hadn't been produced. Uh, we've got a little bit better in the UK now in that we're producing, uh, and this has only happened probably in about the last 10 years, uh, 24-hour forecasts or 18-hour forecasts for the bigger airports. Uh, most of the forecasts are either 8 or 12 hours so if you're if you're doing a a 10-hour flight and the forecast only has an eight-hour validity then you can see the issues wow Wow. well i'm absolutely fascinating subject dan holly captain alf thank you very much now we couldn't do a review of the year show without allowing our wonderful producer to pick his favourite uh, segment from this year's shows. Uh, unfortunately, John is a little bit camera shy, as everyone knows. Uh, but he actually chose uh, episode, uh, an interview we did in episode three one four with Peter Collins. Now Peter Collins is uh, a guy who inspects engines to make sure that they're serviceable, and he was on an episode with uh, Andy from the A three twenty podcast. And as you can imagine, there were some amazing conversations going on uh, between those guys but also one of the things that john is most proud about is our fantastic uh, youtube audience and let's be honest guys you often have far better questions than we do to ask our fantastic guests so uh, yes john's choice is uh, an interview uh, from uh, really when the when the pandemic first broke out uh, back in april i believe uh, and that is peter collins yeah. So, uh, Peter, actually, we're, we're starting to get some questions in uh, from the chat yes. room for you here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this one's from Tony. Yes, he's saying, question for Peter. We know modern jet engines are more efficient, uh, but with numerous high-profile engine failures, do you think modern jets are less reliable than their predecessors? It's wow. a good question, um, Tony. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you look at things like CFM 56, V2500, and they kind of carry on quite nicely. Airbus 737 and so on and then you look at some of the trends and you think uh, for a company like Rolls-Royce who I used to work with and my grandparents World War II they were typists in the office when the Lancaster bomber came in in Derby where I'm from and you think well what's going on you know you've got uh, uh, the um, leap engine the rotorbow issue on startup and you know, all sorts of little bits and pieces uh, here there and everywhere I think what's happening is that people are trying to push things forward really quickly. If you look at anything, you look at the last 100 years compared to the last three or 400 years and the rate of increase in technology and engineering increases um, massively. Um, and I think there's a risk that things can go a little bit too fast. But at the same time, there are some advances. They're trying to make things lighter and stronger and, of course, more efficient, I think. Um, so I think... Uh, if, if I was to sum it up, I'd say let's not reinvent the wheel, guys. Let's uh, look at the things that do work, keep using them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, reliability. The turbine engines are possibly one of the most reliable engines. They're just used – they don't get much wear, really, you know, unlike a traditional piston engine. So 
Um, I, but the, the level of safety, the level of checks that are done by everybody, pilots, engineers, and everything—you know—you're in good hands, really. So that's what I will say. Actually, while well, we've got we've got another question from Tony here, we'll stick with with him if we may. So uh, he's saying, do you find that the higher mounted engines on the T-tail suffer less wear or damage? I think in terms of ingesting fod from the ground. So, for example, uh, gravel, stones. Um, you know, when you apply power, most runways and aprons are pretty clear, but you only need to get uh, to a certain airport and get too close. Uh, it's not even a case of getting too close as the wind picks up uh, sandy environments. Uh, I suppose there's an argument that they, the higher uh, mounted engines get less, uh, ingest less, but as part of my job, most engines I see are on wing rather than on tail um there's a handful of business jets and things and um uh, it's, it's, you don't really nothing really massively noticeable in terms of the differences with uh, fod ingestion and so on and i think that's credit to airport authorities keeping the places fairly clear uh, but i would say there's a good argument certainly if you're landing on slightly rough runway um where there is loose material as let's say you're doing some kind of extra terrain flight you know they're they're testing smaller jets at the moment to see if they can land them on um, wet grass at the moment. This is one of the things they're trying to do, and they really put them through the paces. And they, you know, mud and water goes down the engines. A friend of mine is involved with that locally. He actually is, is an agricultural worker, and he sprays the runways, the grass, to get it waterlogged. And that's an interesting job. So yeah, I think uh, you could probably argue there's a bit less, but you need to remember that the power. Of, I'm sure you appreciate the power from these jets, the intakes. Um, you know, take a 757. If you're stood near where the nose wheel is or in front of the uh, nose when full power is applied, you're going down that engine. There's no two ways about it. So the height, you know, it's a, it is a factor, but basically anything close to those, uh, say, you know, out of those safety zones is, is going to go down the engine, unfortunately. When you're, when you're doing those boroscopic inspections on the engines, um, Peter, with, yes. the cam- with the little cameras, how long is it, what's the general time it takes to do, like, say, a, a CFM? So um, it depends on the sort of check you're doing. If you're doing, for example, what we call a hot section, which is a very typical check that you might do on a regular basis, either because it's something that has to be done or because there is a known defect that has a repeat inspection cycle on it, which could be hours or cycles of that engine. And um, so a hot section inspection, two to three hours maybe, uh, depending. A full engine inspection really depends on the, obviously on the size of the engine, because remember you're looking at every single blade in that engine. So you could be looking at two to 4,000 blades maybe. And um, so CFM 56 is is best part of a day really. Uh, It depends how you do it. And it it really is fundamentally down to how well the aircraft is prepared before you get there, before we arrive to do the job and how and what sort of setup you've got. If you have to do it outside, I've had to do it outside in whichever storm it was. The last one I was outside doing a boroscope inspection. And um, you have to be very careful because if it gets too windy, you can't carry on. Um, So hot sections, two to three hours. You have to video record the whole inspection. It's a requirement. and a full engine inspection, a big CF6 engine, very um, tricky to inspect because the ports are all over the place, is going to be a day or more 
to do a full engine inspection. And then, of course, you find something, you find a defect that's got to be measured. You have to consult the maintenance manual. You have to make a decision. Can this fly or not? What sort of repeats is going to be required? Do I need to contact the manufacturer? And that cascade effect means it takes much more time. And that can have a knock-on effect to the airline and the logistics and the planning. So, yeah. Nev, and... Uh over that cross there in Buckinghamshire. Any, any questions for you, from you for uh, Peter? Yeah, I was going to ask him, actually. Um, Peter, how, uh, with, you know, you were talking about the, the you know, the Trent yes. 1000s and, yeah. and all the rest of it. Um, obviously, it's all about fuel saving now, isn't it? It's all about efficiency of the engine. Um, we were talking about reliability, but actually, of course, these uh, in, are into incredible numbers of uh, etops. You know, you hear yeah, about yeah. two hundred and seventy minutes etops and, and longer. What uh, are you involved with those etops inspections of the aircraft of the engines when they're on the aircraft as well? Sometimes, um, if I'm honest, most of the work that I have been doing has been uh, short to medium haul jets. Um, well, the shortest haul sort of A319, 320, 73. Um, and uh, yeah, there are again. There's this whole swathe of different checks that you, you have to do for for etops. And does it does it, do you need an APU or not? You know, if you're going etops, you're going to probably need to have that APU. And of course, ferry flights. If there's a known issue, you can get a special permission to take an aircraft outside and around to get it to where it needs to go to to have the work done. But I'm not really greatly involved with the etop side of things. Do you inspect the APU as well? Is that, is that part of your Yeah, job? It's, it's just another jet engine. And yeah. although it's less frequent, typically we'll get a request for uh, both engines on uh, twin engine and the APU as well. So I'm going to allow myself just a, a, a supplementary question. Yeah, sure. As, oh, as, as, they, say, as they say in <laughs> the five o'clock uh, briefings. Um, sure. Why is it that um, APUs seem to have... a built-in unreliability. I don't know how many aircraft I've been on. They've had to do a cross-bleed start because the APUs failed. Um, it seems to be quite a lot. I don't know whether it's just me or whether that is the case. Well, I, I think that the other chaps will probably know. I mean, they do a lot of hours. Um, yeah. When you look at APU maintenance manuals, some of them will give you uh, limits that you can allow. For you find, a, for example, a crack in a blade, you're allowed a certain number of 0.0045 inches or something. Others simply say, if you find damage, remove it and get a new one. Um, but I would, my suggestion would be that they're often started up and they're run for long periods of time, shut down, started up again, shut down, and it tends to be quite a quick turn. That's that's my theory, anyway. Yeah. So yeah. We, bl blaming the flight crew, I think. That's yeah, we, no, no, we, no, no, no. We don't look after them. That is the base. <laughs> we do not look after them. Mm. When we, we shut them down, we shut them down on a forty-minute turnaround and then start them up again. That's not healthy. There's no, it doesn't have the required cooling time and to allow the temperatures to dissipate. So that really messes them up. And then as well, people don't shut them down properly, especially on the three twenty. If you shut them down, then just turn the batteries off. It leaves the inlet flap open, and that's not good for them. Which I'm sure Pete has seen many times before. Yeah. 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 Um, I've got a couple of questions for you, Peter. Yeah, please, please. Have you worked on the Leap engine? No, I haven't actually. I've um, my I've got a number of colleagues who do, but I haven't specifically worked. I know of it, but I yeah. haven't worked on it myself. For the fan blades, what sort of different checks would you have to do because they are 
horrible well, it's composition. Yeah, uh, it's a blisk. I don't. It's out of my area of expertise, really, because of this blisk. If anybody listening, it's a sort of continual piece of uh, engineering uh, creativity, uh, probably worth upwards of a quarter of a million and the rest, you know, just for that one element. Uh, generally, fan blades are inspected as part of um, some of the, I don't know if it's C checks or whatever, but um, they, they will take them out and, uh, and have a really good look uh, on all of the air, in, aircraft. But with the Blisk, of course, it's, it's unique. And this is all new stuff. In terms of boroscoping, it's all brand new stuff. It's a, a pretty much brand new engine. And a lot of people are getting uh, issues where they have to, for example, do a 360-degree check of a particular area of that engine. Because normally you put the boroscope in and you turn the engine around and see the blades. Uh, so this is more the internal side. But there are issues where people are looking at the maintenance manual and saying, you know, we're going to get stuck in the engine if, uh, if we go down there. So it, it's all quite new stuff and the maintenance manual is being changed as we go but the blisk yeah i mean there's certainly a very detailed visual inspection and you'll be getting a non-destructive testing taking place uh, there's all sorts of um, technologies using uh, sound and x-ray that they can look through the blades and that is a very advanced area definitely eddy currents and so on so yeah and what sort of materials are they using in the core of the engine because when we start the things up mm. a, a cfm 56 bang straight away no matter what temperature it is it fires up whereas we've got to wait for the core to it just says in the book stabilize it can take anywhere between 30 seconds to a minute and a half yeah before we get light up what sort of reason is that? i think it i think it started when i don't know if it was that or another cfm where when they initially might have been the v2500 actually when they initially released it it was taking seven minutes um but uh, basically what it is is rotor They have this issue with uh, unequal cooling. So it has to go through this process of uh, basically uh, what you would call dry motoring, air being pushed through. And um, it's purely and in, in, in simply just to equalise the temperature. It's a FADEC is sitting there um, kind of going, yeah, I think we're about ready. Yeah, we're good. Fuel goes in, ignition comes on. There you go. Um, so really, it's just a stabilisation thing, and it's it's rotobo. So is that is that an automatic version of what they had to do on Concorde to debore the engine? I suppose I suppose so. I don't not aware, I don't um, not familiar with that, but um, uh, possibly I don't know. It's um, it's done controlled by Fadex. So um, and these things change over time. You know, they have to um, get things just right, but. Um, don't know about that one. It wasn't aware. Bore the engine. That's a yeah, I remember, that up. <laughs> I remember seeing uh, the crews on Concorde um, actually holding the uh, start sequence at a, a lower N1 uh, yeah. before they would allow uh, it to, to uh, ro fully ro rotate. Yeah, yeah and I'm right. sure yeah. the Airbus or the Aerospatial called it deboing the engine. Yeah, yeah, oh, very good, very interesting. When you so, when you're I'm doing these. When you're doing the inspections, Peter, on the engine, yeah, if, yeah. You find, if you find a, a blade, a, you know, a compressor blade, or that is faulty or cracked, what are the implications in the, in respect to kind of time and cost? Is it an engine off, or can that be done in situ? So, uh, first of all, the maintenance manual is written very carefully by the manufacturers because they know certain issues, certain defects can be left for a certain amount of time before a certain action has to be taken. So this is all pre-planned. You have very clear instructions in a maintenance manual as to what course of action to take. 
So for example, take a radial tip crack on a H, um, high pressure compressor blade. So it would need to be measured. You would measure it, you'd work out which part of the blade is cracked, which area of the blade is cracked, um, which section it is. Um, you'd measure the crack and its location, its direction. Is it an axial crack? Is it a radial crack? And um, you then consult the maintenance manual and you decide what limits that is in. Um, some defects you tend to see a lot of and they're quite acceptable. Other defects, for example, look at the low pressure turbine. It's, you know, why is that important? Well, it turns the fan. What does the fan do? It produces 80% of the thrust. It's critically important. You see the tiniest little defects on that and um, typically you're taking that engine off. If you take the engine off, you're going to be looking at at least a million pounds to sort that out. Um, you can, um, there are some repairs that can be done. It says in the maintenance manual, um, some conditions can be repaired using a thing called a borrow blender. And what that is, is a boroscope kit, which has, if you imagine a dental drill and you go in and with this very fine dental drill, you blend away the crack. So if you imagine you have a blade and it's got a crack in it here, small crack, what you would do is create a curb with that on the front of that blade. And it has to there again at maintenance manual limits. And then that condition is said to be repaired. But anything else apart from that, you know, you can't remove blades. The engine has to come off. And a lot of airlines and lease companies have spare engines, so they swap them over. And that one has to go off to the workshop for an overhaul. Peter, along those lines, kind of a follow-up question to that. Yes, yes. Is- when, when we were at Oshkosh this year, we interviewed Tammy Jo Schultz, who was on Southwest 1380, and that NTSB report said that, that the ultimate cause was a, was a failed fan blade. Now, EASA was actually the first one to issue an emergency airworthiness directive. Now, you said sometimes it's over a million pounds to take an engine off or something to, to do those inspections. What, what about when there is an emergency airworthiness directive like that as a result of a, a report how do the airlines tackle that well they they simply have to do it they have to they have to from a sort of management logistics dispatch level they have to get their fleet because you can imagine i'm sure you do appreciate that these aircraft have to be sort of ferried around the place they'll do this sector this sector then they go in for their maintenance and um, the work has to be done. So if there's an urgent service bulletin, airworthiness directive, whatever it is, and I've seen them before, then, um, so for example, V2500, there's a flange on the outside of the, uh, the inner core of the engine, the outside of the case, where somebody recently discovered a crack. And therefore, it's, it's actually one of the easiest inspections to do because you're looking at the outside of the engine. But you've got a boroscope because you want a very close image. But that simply has to be factored in. The airlines get advance notice. They're obviously subscribed as to all of the necessary maintenance manuals and manufacturers' information. And then they've just got to work it in. They've got a time frame, and it's, it's basically, they've just got, it's tough. They've got to work it in, and they've got to get those aircraft, or the engines taken off at least, and swapped around and get that work done. So it's, it's a non-negotiable, really. Um, so, yeah, it's a good question, that one. Thanks. Yeah. What uh, the training involved, Peter, to get to where you are now? Is that quite intense, actually? Is that like a training course? Yeah. Well, you basically, um, obviously, um, 
people come from different backgrounds engineers tend to do a lot of different things and um it's it's a kind of it it's a competency uh, a lot of people in engineering pick up specific competencies things that they do there's also type ratings the same as with the pilots type ratings on the aircraft um you know and it, it takes a quite a long time uh, the key thing really is um there are various courses that are run um by um uh, various organizations part 145 part 147 um one of them comes under maintenance one under training but in essence what you do for every single engine that you look at you have to do uh, competency training on that engine how to horoscope that engine specifically you have the fundamentals of how to do it but you don't just go to courses you actually have to then be under an organization where people more experienced than yourself are showing you how to horoscope and going through the technique and you, you obviously monitored like any other profession you're monitored until you get to a stage where you know you can be allowed to do tasks yourself and then eventually you are given an approval and you go out and you you inspect yourself um anybody can do it with a determination um you know it's it's you know planes are going to keep flying and uh, we need people out there engineering and uh, doing all sorts of things really to do with the aircraft but boroscoping particularly um great job because you get to travel around a lot and see a lot of different aircraft up close and uh, uh, it's good fun to, to to brief or wrap or to sort of wrap the whole thing up um peter anyone who wants to get into um your area of work what's what's the best sort of way to to get into it as such i think go to the aviation events and get talking to the uh companies that are doing uh, scholarships apprenticeships and so on get talking to people get connecting with people obviously for people who are for example in school or college uh, just getting a good set of qualifications look at getting work experience if possible uh, where, wherever is your local airport uh, get it done as early as you can because security obviously is an issue getting clearances but most places are very eager to take on apprentices. I did an apprenticeship at Rolls-Royce Aerospace back in the 1990s. And, and that's the way to go, certainly for the younger individuals, because it's suited to school uh, stage people. Um, but, you know, people changing careers is a similar thing. You, you know, looking at uh, training options, but go to the aviation events and start talking to the, uh, the airlines and the maintenance organisations. So what's the future, um, sort of last up, last up, MP, what's kind of the future plans for you? Are you going to stick within the, within yeah, the industry? Yeah, um, obviously I'm remaining hopeful, remaining positive. Um, you know, we're still going to need aircraft flying, and my suspicion is that as well as the simulators um, for the engine groundlands and, of course, you chaps uh, flying the aircraft, going to be absolutely chock-a-blocker when, uh, when uh, we finally get released. Um, but there's also going to be a lot of boroscope inspections coming up, a lot of work. Um, just remaining positive, remaining hopeful, obviously looking forward to the future and, uh, and so on. And uh, blue skies, I suppose. That's true. That's very a very good, good line. Uh, just one final question, Tony. I managed to find the one that I was uh, looking for. Peter, uh, Tony was asking, can um, the used fan blades be swapped individually between engines or do they need to be new ones? Um, I don't actually know the answer to that. Um, all of these, particularly the fan blades, very critical um, in terms... The thing is with the boroscoping, we don't tend to... Actually, that's the one part that we don't really look at that often. That's dealt with by the maintenance organisation. We tend to look at the rest of the engine. 
uh, fan blade, but certainly other blades. Um, yeah, you do see people, uh, engines are broken down and sold on second hand and then have work done to them. But generally speaking, people fit new blades to things. Or, you know, there's only so far you can go on a blade, it's had a blend repair, it's had this, that, the other, and you you want to be replacing with new parts. But hmm. uh, I don't think there's much of us. I think they tend to end up on people's key rings most of the time. <laughs> Obviously not big fan blades, you know, no, no, be no. quite heavy, is it? <laughs> Sections thereof, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, Peter, thank you yeah. very much for thank your you. time. Andy, uh, thank you very much for your, your help as well and some great questions there uh, between you guys. So thank you very much for that. So, as you can see behind me, I have an excellent view from the control tower at uh, the Dubai Air Show, which I know I'm going a bit against here because it was actually November 2019. But I have to say, one of the highlights, apart from having Neville Bounds with me for, uh, <laughs> for, the, for the duration of our time there in Dubai, which I have to say, honestly, Nev, it was so good to have you there with me. Honestly, it really was an absolute treat. And hopefully did, did, we'll he do it again did he snore, Nev? <laughs> Well, no, was, do you know what? He doesn't snore. No, well, no, no not, not you. Strange because, uh, yeah, I, I accused Carlos of snoring at one point, and he said, by the way, you were snoring. <laughs> <laughs> I was so tired at the end of the day, because uh, we'd had, well, a couple of great days of filming, so many interviews, wasn't it? Really yeah. similar. Yeah, but it, it was a great time. We had an absolutely fantastic time, and hopefully we'll be back again this year, 2021, for, uh, for another instalment at the uh, air show. But the highlight for me, I think, because I couldn't manage to get to the, uh, the Boeing uh, tent the first time that I went to the air show a few years before, um, was when me and Nev managed to um, kind of stompy or stampede into the Boeing chalet outside and uh, which was lovely in air conditioned I will say and uh, we managed to uh, grab an interview with Randy Tinsith who was the former or he was he was uh, the uh, VP of commercial marketing at Boeing and uh, we sat down outside we got um, had some lovely furniture had a lovely cool bottle of water didn't we Nev and uh, sat down and I had a really interesting chat with Randy, and here it is. So we've been lucky indeed to uh, be invited onto the Boeing uh, Terrace here at the Dubai Air Show 2019. I'm here with Randy. Randy, welcome onto the show. It's my pleasure to be here. So Randy, um, Boeing, obviously you've uh, you've got your name on the back of our IDs, so you're obviously a big player here at the Dubai Air Show. Oh, it's a very important show for us. It gives us an opportunity to talk with our customers, it gives us an opportunity to connect with our suppliers, and probably most important, since it's a show, it gives us an opportunity to fly beautiful airplanes like the 787 Dreamliner and really highlight their features and capabilities. So, Randy, what's one of the biggest things you've brought to the show this year uh, for aircraft? Obviously, you've got the Dreamliner over there. Well, we, have the, we have the Dreamliner over there. We have other customers like uh, Emirates that have brought uh, 777-300ER over there. We have another 787 by Etihad with that uh, Man U uh, paint job, which is uh, absolutely spectacular. And then from a military side, which I don't work work on, but we do have the, the, the U.S. tanker uh, that's over in the DOD corral. So we brought a number of airplanes here to really, like I said, to have a show, to have some fun, and to really illustrate how great those products are. So, Randy, the, the 777 is obviously one of the one of the most popular aircraft, I think, for the for the long-haul wide-bodied uh, fleet of airlines that they use. Obviously, we've got the 777X now starting to come online. Um, what was the whole idea on bringing the 777X uh, out with Boeing? Well, I'll tell you, the 777 has been the most successful wide-body program in aviation history. 
Well, we got to the place with the program. We had been producing the 777-300ER for a number of years, and it was time with the new competition, both from Airbus and from our 787, to make a leap forward on that aircraft. So we worked with GE to develop a new engine. We developed this amazing large composite wing, as we talked about, that has the folding tips. Um, And then we brought a new passenger experience uh, to our customers. So this is just the next step in the evolution of that airplane. It's going to be 10% better than our competitor's new product. You know, it's going to be 30-40% more fuel efficient than airplanes like the A380 or the 747-400. So we're doing the right thing for our customers. I think we're doing the right thing for the environment. And ultimately, I think we're breathing life into an airplane that's now 25 years old and bringing that next generation of uh, aircraft to the market. So avionics-wise, on the flight deck, is the the, the original 777, say the 300ER that's over there, is the commonality very similar to the new, the latest 777X that's coming online? Well, the 777X actually looks a whole lot more like an 87 on the flight deck uh, than the 777 today. Uh, clearly, it will have the same type rating, or that's our objective, to have the same type rating as the uh, 777 today and a common type rating with the 787. Uh, the one thing that's new in terms of technology, this will be the first airplane that we build that has a flight deck that actually has screen touch technology. So we're bringing the iPad uh, today into the flight deck and making it part of that display system. How important do you think with that aircraft the whole passenger experience is? Uh, you know, Obviously the airlines can have a choice of interiors and seating, but mm-hmm. obviously you've built the aircraft to, to adapt to, to whatever the, the, the airline wants. You know, I like to think about it that we give our customers a canvas with the airplane and give them flexibility to configure that airplane so they can bring their band brand in. They can um, create an environment that is unique to their brand, unique for their customers. I think with the 777X, you know, we, we, we recognize every centimeter counts. So actually compared, even though the fuselage of the 777X outside fuselage is the same as today's 777, we've actually sculpted um, the interior a little bit. So we give 10 extra centimeters of space uh, inside the airplane. It doesn't sound like a lot, but what it does is it allows us, at least for the economy class passengers, to configure the airplane in a tenebrous configuration and still leave 18 inch wide seats. So we're giving them more comfort. We're able to do things with new windows in the airplane, with new architectures, uh, with lower cabin altitude to really help provide a better experience for passengers. And again, our job is to make sure that we give them an architecture, we give them the capabilities, we give them our customers the palette to work with, and I think we've done absolutely the right thing with 777X interior. One of the things we have uh, on the show, we have various crew from airlines come on as guests, and uh, a lot of the crew that we've spoken to who who fly on the on the seven or the triple seven three hundred ER have said that they it's it's one of the preferred aircraft for crew for the crew rest area especially yeah. they find it a lot more accommodating than than uh, some other aircraft that are in their fleet. Well, I had a chance a few years ago to fly on the triple seven two hundred LR in the world's longest flight, so I got a chance to use one of those crew rest areas for myself. They are pretty nice. <laughs> it's a good night's sleep. You know, it's one of those things. It, it the airplane's quiet. You have that sound of the wind and the, the motion of the aircraft. It just rocks you to sleep. I think one of the things that makes the airplane so successful is it's just rock solid when it flies. And I can tell you with this new big composite wing, we're going to con- continue to keep that tradition of providing that rock solid performance and cruise capability for our customers. Now, a few uh, years ago, I was lucky enough to uh, travel out to Muscat in Oman. Mm-hmm. 
on uh, BA's uh, Dash 9, mm-hmm. the Dreamliner. And um, before I flew on the aircraft, obviously I'd heard all the news reports about how it was, you'd feel fresh, you'd feel more, yeah. you know, uh, alive when you got to your destination. I have to say, touch wood, I felt really good when I got there after well, that flight. Did you think it was real or it was good marketing for my team? It, <laughs> I, it's true. It does. It, it's you do feel you do feel a lot better than you would do on on as you say a standard kind of uh, you, pressure. You know, just to tell a little story. A few years ago, I flew on my first commercial seven eight seven flight, uh, like so many others, and I, I held back to talk to one of the flight attendants just a little bit, uh, so so I could get her idea of what what she thought about the airplane, and so. I started the conversation. I said, you know, I work at Boeing. I know a little bit about the Dreamliner. I said, what do you not like about the Dreamliner? And she gave a legitimate complaint that the doors on the lavatories were a little bit flimsy, which we fixed. She said, well, she had a customer that it actually popped off, and you have a customer walking down the aisle with the lavatory door. So we fixed that problem. I said, what do you like? And once I kind of got this conversation going, she said, the air. She said, without question the air she said i feel different and this is where i this is my workplace and thank you for what you've done to the air so maybe that maybe it's good marketing but i think we did make a difference so going on to the, some of the older aircraft the 76 is still uh, obviously being utilized quite a lot across the globe and the 74 uh, obviously we're still with ba mm-hmm. uh, we're flying back on a 747-400 tomorrow with yep. ba uh, back to the uk uh, still a very popular aircraft. Um, obviously, a lot of the airlines are starting to phase out the 74 yeah. now. But do you think uh, the Dash 8 will, will will kind of progress? As a passenger airplane, probably not. I think that we see the future of the 747-8 as a freighter configuration. You know, it has that u- unique capability to carry almost 140 tons of cargo. It has the unique nose-loading door. So I think that it's going to have a special place there. But I think the future of passenger service for big airplanes is going to be the 777 yeah. It's going to be the biggest airplane out there. It is significantly more efficient than any four-engine airplane uh, that's flying today or potentially in the future. So I think that's where the future is. Yeah, it's, it's for me, I've only had, ever had the experience to travel on the 74 once with, with Virgin. And it's it's a fa- it's that iconic experience to be able to travel on the seven four seven. That's a whole. If you can get it, if you can get in the, the you can get at the front of the airplane in the nose section. You can get in the upper deck. It's pretty special. It's the only airplane when you get in that uh, uh, the section uh, forward of door one that you're actually landing before the pilot yeah. does. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> so a couple of things before we wrap up then, uh, Randy. It's, it's obviously. Um, we're here on the Boeing stand with you. Um, all the Boeing products going right from the 72 or 717, 7, 737, 7, 4, right through the range. Is there a favorite you have, kind of one that, that you, you, you love to see either in flight well, or it's standing? Not, it's not flying anymore, but I started my career at Boeing as a flight test engineer on the 757 program and the 767 program. Now, the good news is, my guess is between the delivery of our first 767 to the very last one, or last one goes out of service, you know, we're looking at a program that might last 100 years. Pretty amazing when you think about it. It's already been in production 40. We're going to produce it for a number of years, and that last airplane rolls out the off the line, who knows how long. Could be 100 years beginning to end. But my favorite airplane still is 757. There's no airplane that has that same feel. <laughs> you can When you take off, you can feel it in the back of your neck. Yeah. So the performance is unmatched, so it's still my favorite ride. And it is my... <laughs> Very in my top 
two at least of yeah. favorite aircraft. But yeah, I think it's good. because that's where I started, yeah. and I, it has a special place. It's a very popular aircraft, I will yeah, say, especially with popular. our listeners. So last off then, uh, what's the future hold for Boeing? Where, where do we go on from, say, the, the, the 777X? Where, what do you think well, is in the future I, for Boeing? I, well, first of all, I guess I'm a little bit near-term focus. Our, our, our first fo- uh, priority has to be to get the 737 MAX back to safe service. Uh, we're working hard uh, with the oversight of the regulators to get that done. I think when it comes to um, the wide-body aircraft, you know, we're in a very good market position there. It's going to continue to be about bringing the 777X to the marketplace. At some point, creating a 777X freighter because it, the freighter product line is so important to us. And continue with, to involve and uh, improve the 787. You know, we launched the 787 now at a 2004, so we're 15 years since launch. So, you know, at some point, uh, we just brought the, the newest member of the 787-10. But at some of the point in the future, we have to look at how we improve that airplane as well. So we're always trying to focus on how we can improve and bring more value to our customers. That's what drives us. Well, I'm pleased to say in a few weeks' time, I should be flying out to Oman uh, on a Dash 8 with, uh, with BA. So okay, I'm I think you'll enjoy that. that very much. Yeah, yeah. Well, on behalf of uh, us at the Plane Talking UK podcast, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. And appreciate your time today and enjoy the rest of the air show. I will. Thank you. Thank you. So, Nev, if people don't already know, where can they search for us on the social medias? Yes, well, the website, of course, is www.plaintalkinguk.com. You can WhatsApp us on uh, plus 44-757-2249166. Twitter is at plaintalkinguk, or you can email the show at podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. So we're going to hand things over to Armando then to, uh, to sign off for this first show of 2021. So, Armando, over to you. Guys. I'm very much looking forward to 2021. It's going to be a great year. I can already feel it because we're one day into it and everything has gone great. But uh, hey, for all you guys over there in the UK, all our listeners all over the world and all of us here in America, we're really looking forward to seeing you on the next live show next week on January 8th. Same bat place, same bat channel. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) 